Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My name is Jenna, and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. If you are struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder, then check out NoCD. NoCD offers online therapy for people who are struggling with OCD anywhere in the United States and now in the United Kingdom. You can do live video sessions with a licensed therapist who specializes in the treatment of OCD, which is exposure and response prevention. Between sessions, you'll get 24-7 support from our peer support community and our clinician-guided tools. You also have the ability to message your therapist from the app for additional support and encouragement. Plus, the app tracks all of your exposures, and there are tons of other ERP tools on there too, like an SOS track to put on when you're really, really struggling. You can get started by booking a free call at www.treatmyocd.com or download the free NoCD app to get started. And depending on what state you live in, you may even be able to work with me as your therapist. We even have free support groups that you can sign up for, and they're all led by a therapist who specializes in ERP. Head to www.treatmyocd.com and tell them that Jenna Overboss sent you. Hey, hey, everyone. We're, I'm just going to riff it today. So this is totally off the cuff. This is something that came up for me during a session. So you guys are going to get a total like off the cuff podcast episode with little to no preparation. I literally have a sticky note here with a couple of like chicken scratches. Um, So the question of I'm doing exposures and I'm not habituating, what the heck is happening? Habituation, habituation, habituation. Like my therapist told me that I need to be habituated, that I need to sit with my anxiety until it comes down by half. What if it's not coming down by half? Um, And so I'm going to go over some things that could be happening here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the habituation model that underlies exposure and response prevention. And I'm going to talk about another model that's just gaining more and more steam and gaining a lot more research attention and a lot more clinical discussion kind of in the more professional and clinical areas. Um, That's the inhibitory learning model. And so going to give you guys a crash course in those as well, maybe some teasers about uh, upcoming episodes. And so today, by the end of this episode, you will, if you've ever wondered about what the heck is going on? I'm not habituating to these exposures, or maybe you're a therapist and you have patients or clients who are not habituating to exposures. I'm going to go over a couple of things that could be going wrong and why this isn't really that big of a problem in the first place. So first things first, 
you know, the habituation model that underlies exposure and response prevention basically states that as we, you know, evoke fears and as we approach these anxiety provoking situations via exposures, then we should habituate to it, meaning that without us having to do anything about it, we just kind of get used to it. And so it's been pretty much the primary model. Um, Habituation has been the primary model that kind of underlies and supports and explains exposure and response prevention. And we really, you know, under this model, if you're using a practice yourself as a therapist, or if you are a a member at NoCD, or if you are a client working on exposure and response prevention, and you are, you know, under the habituation model, that will be told to you and talked to you in the fact that we're talking about your anxiety just kind of getting naturally better. Um, You know, that as you do this anxiety-provoking thing, you'll trigger uncertainty and eventually your anxiety will peak and eventually it it will peak and it will go down naturally on its own without you having to do anything about it. And usually therapists are told to tell their members or their clients um, to kind of use a SUD scale. So a subjective unit of distress scale, usually on a scale of zero to 10 or zero to 100 or whatever. Um, And you'll have to kind of identify what your anxiety rating is at the beginning of that exposure. And usually you're told to wait until that comes down by about half. And so if you've done those types of exposures or if you have been told or if you've told your clients to do stuff like that, then you are doing kind of the habituation model as we know it. Um, And that's really been the guiding light for all of us. That's kind of what we've all been talked to, you know, taught about as far as, you know, exposures go and, and all that stuff. But we're talking more about learning these days as well. So we're talking more about how exposure is not just about habituation, that it actually, there are other processes involved there. And learning is really, truly what is going on during the exposure process, not necessarily habituation. So um, Dr. Yadin, who is kind of an expert in ERP, as it is for obsessive compulsive disorder and PTSD, said that earthworms habituate, humans learn, which I absolutely love because it doesn't say that humans don't habituate, right? So I think that when it comes to our own understanding of exposure therapy and when it comes to our application of it as therapists or if we're receiving it from therapy, it's not that we either have to abide by the habituation theory or we have to, you know, fall in love with inhibitory learning. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive at all. I think that they can inform each other. And I think that as we navigate therapy with our clients or our members, um, I say members because that's what we call them at NoCD, Uh, I I think they complement each other. I think that, yes, we can acknowledge that things get easier over time and that our emotions ebb and flow and that we don't necessarily need to do anything about that. That's more of the habituation model. I also believe that learning takes place. I believe that even in the absence of habituation, you can still learn a lot of really cool things. So going to get way more in-depth about that. But first and foremost, If we are just claiming, you know, stake in the habituation model, which is still very applicable and very widely used, um, and again, like, don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think that there's still a lot to be learned from the the habituation model. I think that, you know, it still really is informative and helps people, and I'm not going to get rid of it anytime soon myself, 
although I do love incorporating more and more of the inhibitory learning model as well. So here are some ways or some reasons why if you are doing exposures and you're not habituating, so you're not feeling any better, you know, during that, during that exposure trial, or maybe like in general, um, if you're not experiencing habituation, so that natural decrease in your anxiety. First things first, your anxiety could be too high. So it's possible that maybe you just hit them, you know, miss the mark, uh, you and your therapist, and you identified an exposure to do that was just way too anxiety provoking. And it's important to give yourself as the client some leeway here, right? Like a 10 out of a 10 exposure, I wouldn't suggest that you do anyway. But let's say that you just did it and, you know, it just ended up being a 10 out of a 10. It's going to take a lot longer for you to get used to that and to come down from that naturally on your own versus like a 3 out of a 10, right? So I think that just kind of makes intuitive sense. Like high-level anxiety is going to take longer for you to habituate to. So it makes sense that as you are experiencing higher levels of anxiety and as it starts to become highly unmanageable, you're not going to habituate. And, and you may even be more pulled to do rituals at that point because your anxiety is just so high. And so I would ask yourself first and foremost, like, did I get an assignment or did I give an assignment that was just way, way too high? It's also possible that in addition to your anxiety just being way too high with this exposure, that it is too low. So sometimes I, especially working in residential, um, where people are there 24-7 and they're really, really debilitated by their OCD, we pretty much never saw anyone habituate to a zero. <laughs> like, it just wasn't their baseline. And that wasn't, that couldn't be the goal. Um, so if someone was, you know, at a two, was it, was I really going to see them come down to a one or a zero? I, I don't know. Like, so, so I would also ask, you know, am I really putting all my eggs here? And is it worth putting all my eggs in one basket? Like if my anxiety is already super low and I don't really need to come down any further because I can handle this exposure in my everyday life and I'm good to go, maybe you don't need to come down from a two to a one. Like personally, I don't know if I'm ever like below a two. <laughs> So, yeah. So in addition to maybe your anxiety just being too high, it could also just be too low. Like maybe you just need something different altogether. So the number one reason I think that someone is not habituating and they everything else is good to go, you know, the exposure should be fine, but it's just not working out. And what the heck is going on? My first go to is, is this person ritualizing? And it might not always be super obvious, right? So sometimes it's not as obvious as like, yep, they are dirty and they wipe their hands off on their pants. Sometimes it's pot stopping. Sometimes, you know, these individuals are doing an exposure and they're not, they're like intentionally trying to stop their thoughts about contamination. Sometimes they are, you know, self-assuring themselves throughout the process, which could obviously interrupt with that. Um, and so, yeah, so number one thing to look out for, if you are not uh, experiencing habituation, or if a client that you're seeing is not experiencing habituation, just try to do a really thorough work through as to if they are ritualizing or not. And so, like I said, it could be behavioral. It could also be a ton of mental things that are going on too, that without that really thorough, you know, walkthrough with a therapist, these things may go totally undetected. And so any, any behavioral ritual, any mental ritual, basically anything that you're doing compulsively 
is going to interrupt that process of habituation and it will interrupt the process of inhibitory learning too. So basically try as hard as you possibly can to not do compulsions during exposures, okay? Uh, the next thing here is just that there's probably some distraction going on, um, intentional distraction as a way of coping with the anxiety or you know alleviating the anxiety that you feel from an obsession is also not good. Um, it's just a, an anxiety reduction strategy. It's It works the same way as a compulsion. It's just avoidance of the uncomfortable sensations and the uncomfortable thoughts. So we want you during exposures to truly just allow ha to happen whatever happens. We don't want you to intentionally distract yourself by thinking about what's for dinner or what's on the TV. I'm kind of a stickler. Even, you know, if it's possible during exposures, I don't really talk to people during exposures. Um, you know, obviously we'll do some feedback before and after, but really when they know what they're to be doing, I don't want to distract them during exposures. Um, I don't allow people to do any like respiratory control or any type of, you know, coping skill or breathing during exposures because I don't want that to be what latches on. Um, I don't want that to be attributed to why their anxiety came down. And I also just, like I said, don't want them to be intentionally distracting themselves. I don't like for them to have music on in the background or a TV. Like, I don't want anything to basically distract them. I always say to my, my patients, I want nothing but the anxiety, nothing but the passing of time to be why your anxiety comes down. So um, you could also be just anxious about the fact that your anxiety is not coming down. <laughs> um so I did a podcast episode about this a couple weeks ago about like, am, can, can you do exposures too much? Uh, what happens like when the anxiety rating scale makes you anxious? And so I've seen this so many times, you guys, like when someone is having a really hard time habituating to an exposure and then they start to get all freaked out about like, am I doing this exposure correctly? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Um, and that can just be so detrimental to the whole process because I always say to people, other than ritualizing pretty overtly, like the one way that you can ensure that you are doing an exposure wrong is to obsess and ritualize over doing the exposures wrong. Um, because that perfectionism can really just totally derail you and totally distract you. And so if you're starting to get anxious, like, well, what if my anxiety is not coming down? What am I doing this right? Like, what if I'm going to be miserable forever? What if I'm anxious forever? What if I can't get a hold of this? Like, just allow those thoughts to be there, just like any other thought, and try to just bring it back to the exposure. So I believe in my previous podcast episode where we talked about what to do and what to think during exposures, I talked about how exposure work can kind of be like an evil meditation. And instead of during regular meditation where you want to come back to your breath, during exposures, being an evil meditation of sorts, we want you to just come back to the exposure. Just keep coming back to the exposure, come back to the trigger, come back to what it was that you were feeling, and try to go from there. So even if you have these thoughts going on in the background, even if you have this noise, so to speak, about like, are you doing this right? Why didn't your anxiety come down yet? That's weird. Just try to let that be there and try to keep going with it anyway. So there are two more reasons that I have up my sleeve as to why exposures might be something that you or your clients aren't habituating to. And so I will get to those really quickly first, though. I want to tell you guys about a product that I absolutely love. So I'm going to take a quick break here, talk to you guys about that, and then we'll be right back with two more potential reasons why someone's not habituating. 
and we'll talk a little bit more about the inhibitory learning model. I've often said that one of my favorite go-to self-care routines is to get my nails done. But if you're like me, then you just can't justify salon prices or the harshness that these bring to your nails. Olive in June allows you to get the salon quality manicures and pedicures at home. You can easily go up to seven days without chipping, you don't have to leave the house, and you can finally stop spending $35 or more every two weeks on getting them done. For $10 off your first order, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com and click on deals. Alrighty, we're back. Two last reasons to kind of think about or consider as to why you might not be habituating to your exposures. One, are you doing your exposure repetitively enough? It's usually not enough you to just correct this thing once, right? So as we, you know, think of it like if you're watching a scary movie, you watch a scary movie and for the first time you watch it, you're scared. And if you're like me, you're like plugging your ears and closing your eyes and your friends make fun of you for watching the scary movie anyway. Like, why are you watching the scary movie if you're just going to close your eyes and close your ears the entire time? (laughs) Um, But then you watch it a second time and then you watch it a third time. Imagine if I watched it 1,500 times. I'm not going to have the same emotional reaction or response to it as I did the first time, right? So that's habituation when you just continue to do this and 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 you get used to it. Now, maybe watching the scary movie two times isn't enough, right, for me to see the meaningful change that I need to see. And so I would just ask yourself, you know, or your clients, are you doing this exposure repetitively enough? And so maybe you don't see within trial habituation. So maybe you don't see your anxiety go from a four to a two in that one single trial. But maybe as they continue to repeatedly expose themselves to this fear, whether it's bees or something that's contaminated or an intrusive thought or image, maybe by the time that they've looked at it 10 times, then it starts to become easier. So then their peak anxiety is getting more manageable. And what that is, is between trial habituation. So maybe it's always a two and 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 it's always a two. And And then all of a sudden it becomes a one, this next trial that they try. And so that is still good. That's still a different type of habituation. It's just that we typically, you know, think of habituation as being in that moment. And sometimes it's not in that moment. Sometimes it doesn't take place until you've done it repetitively enough where you can kind of compare those peak anxiety trials across time. So just try to do your exposure more repetitively and you may find something that switches. And then the last thing here to consider before we, you know, consider a whole different model altogether is, are you sitting with it for long enough? I cannot tell you how many times people have freaked out about their, about their anxiety not coming down during an exposure, but they've been in the exposure for like two minutes. And I know when you're anxious, it seems like time goes so slowly. That's why I would encourage you guys to like not look at a timer, to not look at the clock because it's going to feel like watching water boil. Um, I would just encourage you to just be in the exposure. So ask yourself, like, have I really truly given this enough time? And so if it's really taking a long time, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30, if we're getting on like 30 plus minutes and all the other boxes are checked and this is a consistent pattern for people. 
then I would reframe everything and I would be educating my members about the inhibitory learning model anyway, like from session one. But you can still rely on the inhibitory learning model to demonstrate progress. So the habituation model we talked about is basically just getting used to it. So you feel better about it because you get used to the stimulus that's anxiety provoking for you. The inhibitory learning model could still conceptualize progress with this person who's not habituating. Let's say someone is doing their exposures repetitively enough. They are sitting with it for long enough. They are not ritualizing. They are not doing any engagement strategies with it whatsoever. It's not too high. It's not too low. They're not doing any compulsive coping. They're not anxious about the exposures. And they're checking all the boxes. I would still claim this as a success (laughs) based on the inhibitory learning model. So the inhibitory learning model basically states that new when new learning occurs, it's good for new learning to occur because it replaces old threat expectancies, right? So as we continue to do these anxiety-provoking things, we are opening the possibility for us to correct those old threat expectations, those old expectations with new information, with new experiences. And so it's really all about learning and unlearning. And I really, really love this model. And like I said, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think that you can totally love both of them at the same time. Um, And so there are two types of, there are actually like, I think a lot of things that happen with the inhibitory learning approach. But what I would emphasize with you or with your clients, if you're not seeing habituation, talking to them about the inhibitory learning model. So talking to them about how, what have you learned through continuing to go through this process? You know, as you have, you know, gone outside and laid in the grass during the summer, even though you're fearful of bees, have you gotten stung? If you did get stung, how catastrophic was that? How are you doing just sitting with your anxiety and not having to avoid or do your compulsions? What's been happening for you now that you've let go of your avoidance and your compulsions? Um, What has it felt like to be able to make choices, right? Like you are in this anxiety provoking situation and it seems like you could compulse or you didn't or you or you chose not to. What was it like even when you were scared to be able to make the choice to not do the compulsion and not avoid? And so I think there's such great conversation and such great learning that can happen that really demonstrates a ton, a ton of progress if you conceptualize it in the inhibitory learning model. And so it's really important for us as therapists to really demonstrate to our clients, like you, every, even if you didn't habituate to your anxiety, you still demonstrated that you can sit with anxiety for a really long time and not avoid it and not have to ritualize through it. And chances are icing on the cake We've also learned that one, your feared event isn't as catastrophic as you thought, i.e. if you did get stung by a bee, it's not this huge catastrophic event that you anticipated it being. And then two, it's not as probable as you likely think, right? So in our worst case scenarios, we think that everything is going to be catastrophic and we think that things are way more likely than they actually are to happen. But as we stop treating these things like threats, we stop feeling the need to have to protect ourselves from them, right? So um, as you continue to put yourself in these new anxiety-provoking situations, you learn to stop engaging in avoidance and compulsions. 
eventually you learn how good it feels to be able to just be outside with your son in the summer and not be constantly worrying or checking for bees. And eventually you learn that it's not so catastrophic if you get stung by a bee. Eventually you learn that, hey, I could be stung by a bee regardless of how much checking I do, regardless of what avoidance I do. I could still get stung by a bee. Funny story, I've gone 31 years without getting stung by a bee because I have spent 31 years of my life mastering avoidance of these suckers and compulsing and having my husband like chase them away from me. And I hate bees. All right. And all the while, I thought that that those behaviors were keeping me safe, that somehow if I just avoided and I put on enough bug spray and if I blah, 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 I would be 100 percent safe from getting stung by a bee. Well, I did all the things for 31 years. And I got stung by a bee in my son's playroom because it was in the box of one of his toys. So it was in my least expected place. It was never really where I ritualized anyway. And I was never 100% safe from getting stung by a bee. These ritualistic behaviors just made me feel arbitrarily and superficially like I was safe from it. But it ended up happening anyway. And it was great that it ended up happening because... I've learned that it's not as probable as I think. My expectations actually weren't legitimate at all. I was out here thinking that I would get stung outside and not ever really thinking about getting stung inside. And it's not catastrophic. It was, it stung and it wasn't pleasant, but I'm here today to talk about it. And eventually my emotions about that scenario, it they ebbed and they flowed and they came and they went just like every other emotion. And I learned that I can tolerate it. I learned that even if I don't want to get stung by a bee again, I can handle it. I don't want to have to handle it, but I'm not also going to let that fear dictate my behaviors. I'm, when, when summer comes around and when all the snow is melted, I'm not going to let that fear dictate my behaviors. And so moral of the story here is that there are really tons of things going on when, it, when we're talking about exposures. And even if someone's not habituating, you can still conceptualize that as really, really cool learning. And so it's really important, I think, for you, whether you're getting ERP yourself because you're, you know, working through some difficulties or you're trying to build confidence and self-esteem in your clients, really reframing this is like all, all the cool stuff that we're learning by challenging ourselves. How does it feel to challenge yourself versus just giving into the OCD all the time? you've learned that you can do this, right? Like you've learned that you can do this now. And building that self-efficacy, building that self-esteem and building that self-confidence is so important for our members and for our clients and that those qualities are gonna take them far and above and beyond into the future for all of these new and anxiety-provoking situations that come. So I hope you guys found that to be helpful. Um, I hope that we talk more and more about the inhibitory learning model because I love it. I love it so much. And, you know, kind of the moral of the story here, guys, is as long as you aren't, as long as you are facing your fear and as long as you are trying to resist rituals as much as you possibly can, you're probably making some really awesome progress. So don't get hung up if you're not experiencing habituation. There's so much more to it than that. Really try to ask yourself, like, what am I learning? Like, even if I'm not habituating at all, like, what what are some really awesome things that I've learned from these experiences? And basically, at the very least, you're learning that you're pretty much a badass. So um, hope that was helpful. I hope that you all 
really enjoyed this like totally off the cuff situation. Um, I have a person that I need to go see now, so I'm going to hop off. But thank you guys for tuning in for another episode. I love hanging out with you and I will see you next time. In the meanwhile, keep doing all the hard things. Bye. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.